Um, two stories. I grew up in a, a pretty cool neighborhood. Um, had lots of friends my age. We did lots of stuff together. It was a safe neighborhood. My parents let me kind of roam around and play with my friends and do different things, and it was a, it was a lot of fun. Uh, we played a lot of games, a lot of sports together, and we we organized even like our own sports leagues based on the street that we lived on. So we had two two-person wiffle ball teams, and me and my neighbor, we were always on a team. We were the P- Pittsburgh, uh, the Primrose Pirates, because we lived on Primrose Lane, and there was like the the like the Mill Creek Marauders, and you know, and we would play street hockey. Same same thing. It was always two on two. Um, and there was different teams. Uh, maybe there were two brothers who lived over here, two friends who lived over there. But it was just kind of cool. We just self-organized. It was a good place to live and be like, Mom, got a street hockey game today. See ya. Um, she's like, all right, see ya. You know, it was, it, was a good, it was a good place to grow up. And uh, this is always, this is my sports partner and me. Yeah, you like that? Yeah. I'm the one on the right. That's my best friend's song, and uh, he lived right next to me, and he was my baseball partner, my soccer partner, my street hockey partner. Um, We knew each other since second grade all the way through high school and beyond, and we still, he lives in Hong Kong right now, but we still connect occasionally. Um, So we pretty much grew up doing all this stuff together. It was a lot of fun, except we had this one neighbor um, who had a perfect lawn, and it was like a big deal. Um, manicured lawn, lots of arbor artistry in his yard, um, bird feeders, wildlife coming in. You know, this is your typical kind of suburb here, houses, you know, on a, like a quarter acre kind of thing that close to each other. Um, and uh, we, all these kids lived around him. So, and we were always playing sports, and so things would get into his yard, and and it was not a pretty scene. I mean, it was honestly pretty scary, to be honest with you. As a kid, being just yelled at um, by this guy about a ball rolling into his yard or something was just really, really hard. And so we always kind of were on edge and careful about where we played, how we played. And we still took risks as kids. Like, now I wouldn't even take the risk. of like, let's go two miles that way. But at that, you know, as a kid, you, you're, you're afraid of it, but you're still like, let's play. So we did. And so we had these incidents with our neighbor. Um, there was one particular incident where we were playing um, Nerf soccer with a Nerf soccer ball at a house directly adjacent to his. And the ball got away, and it rolled down this little embankment into his driveway, and it hit the wheel of his shiny Corvette, which was really shiny because he polished it and cleaned it all the time, and um, the, sh- the Corvette was a reflection of how he manicured his lawn as well. And we just all, nobody went for the ball. Everybody just scattered and hit. Like, that's what we needed to do, is just duck and cover and go. And I'm, I didn't have a good hiding spot. I, I just, I remember ducking, like, around the corner of their house and just, like, like this. And then I just remember seeing his feet standing there. And I looked up, and he just tore into me. Just tore into me about what had happened. About, you know, how we're disrespectful and... You know, song, I don't know where Song was. He was bailed out somewhere. Which, by the way, those socks, we were talking about this morning. Like, insurance companies now charge people, like, $75 for those socks. For, like, when they're recovering from surgery and stuff. Those pressure socks. My mom bought six in a pack for, like, a buck ninety-nine, right? And they stayed up all day. You didn't need to pull them back up. They were there. And those shorts, they're coming, they're coming back in style and tucking in. 
Song was nowhere to be seen. Everybody else found a better hiding spot, and I just took the brunt of this. There was no, like, him looking at multiple people. It was just me, and I just was destroyed and devastated. And I ran home. Um, my house is about four houses down the street, and I just went into the house just in tears and just bawling to my dad. Like, oh, the bone in the shack yard hit his Corvette, and, and he screamed at me. And, oh. and, you know, as a kid, like, I wanted my dad to just go beat up our neighbor, like, just, like, defend Defend us. Protect me. Protect me, you know? Um, my dad was pretty upset because he could see how upset I was, and he knew the history, and he's probably just like, why are you playing ball there when you know? But my dad could see the pain. And so uh, my dad didn't do anything right then. Um, he thought about it. He thought about what to do. And what he eventually did was he bought flowers, not in jest, not in mockery, but he bought flowers, and then he carried them up and gave them to this man and his wife. And um, I guess maybe he apologized for what had happened or something because he didn't know what else to do. I was kind of hoping he'd maybe be a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more confrontational. Um, but I remember as a young kid, um, probably you know a little older than in this picture, I remember seeing that and knowing that that's what my dad was doing. And I remember it just, it just affected me. Like, well, that's strange. I don't understand that fully. But I know that it's different. And I know that there's something right about it. Story two. Just a couple weeks ago, I was uh, with a group of folks praying, and one of my friends who was there was pr- talking. She lives in the Ephrata area, and she was talking about this um, train station that they redeveloped in downtown Ephrata somewhere, um, and they call it the Whistle Stop now. And it's like this cool place where you can go, and there's like a market there, and it's a lot of fun. And if they just redeveloped this. Thing is, when they redeveloped this, like the neighborhood riffraff started hanging out there. So then all the people that this was actually made for and redeveloped for wouldn't go there because they were afraid. They were afraid that they were going to get beat up or hurt or their kids were going to hear bad language or, you know, whatever. Um, it was kind of overtaken by these teens, young adults who they didn't actually want there. And they didn't know what to do about that. So this community thing, oh, what do we do about these bad kids who are taking over this cool place that we've recreated for us and now we can't go there because we're too afraid this is effort of. We're supposed to have peace, and we're not supposed to have to deal with this stuff. Um, so my friend and a friend of hers decided, you know, let's go down and let's go talk to these kids, right? So they go down, and um, they had, uh, I think one of them had their granddaughter with them, and their ball got away, and it kind of rolled over to one of these kids, and he brought it back, and they started talking. And one of the first things out of this young man's mouth was like, I don't like people. That was his introduction. I don't like people. Oh okay, well, it's nice to meet you, I guess. Well, they talked a little bit. They talked a little bit, and uh, one of, I guess, my friend's friends said, hey, have you guys, have you done anything on the 4th of July? No, I don't do anything on the 4th of July. I don't have anybody to do anything with. I haven't done anything. What? Everybody needs to go to a picnic on the 4th of July. How about if we come back next week and bring burgers and hot dogs? Oh, okay. So the next week they came back, brought burgers and hot dogs, cooked it up, and they started interacting, and they started to hear story of woe and brokenness and sadness. And, and by the time that they left, this young man who introduced himself the week before as, I don't like people, gave my friend a hug. Loved her. Yeah, yeah. How beautiful is that? Like, how beautiful is that? We're in James, and we keep talking about how James is a second commandment book, and the second commandment is love your neighbor. 
love your neighbor. And what, is, what does that look like? What is the fullness of that? We, we have these inklings and shadows and examples of that, but, but, but what's the depth of it? So we're going to look at, we're going to look in James chapter 3, and we looked at this passage uh, about a month and a half ago, maybe two months ago, on uh, the state of the family. James chapter 3. Are you guys ready for me to change the slide, or did you want to look at it a little more? You like it? I can get copies. Just let me know. Shoot me an email. Um, we were a force. We were a force in uh, sports in our neighborhood. James three thirteen to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This wisdom from above sounds pretty good. It sounds like something we'd want. The wisdom from below sounds pretty evil. Uh, earthly, okay, that doesn't sound, that doesn't hit me too hard, but unspiritual and then demonic? I don't want that kind of wisdom. I don't know about you, but it sounds like if we don't have the wisdom from above, that that's the realm that we operate in, the realm of evil, the realm of every vile practice. So this is, this is the list of what wisdom from above is, what God's wisdom is. It's not, that's what the X stands for. You'll see that X throughout today's PowerPoint. That means not whatever follows. It's not full of bitter jealousy. Wisdom from above is n- not full of selfish ambition. Um, it is pure, and it is peaceable. It is gentle and open to reason. It's full of mercy. It's full of good fruits. It's impartial. It's sincere. That's a lot of things, and all of those things are pretty deep. If somebody were to describe you or me in those ways, that would be a lot of solid stuff to be walking in, a lot. One of those in and of themselves is pretty, pretty full. If you know somebody who's full of mercy, I want to be around that. I want to be around that, but, but take the whole list. That's wisdom from above. I remember that James is a second commandment book, so it's always the self, me or you, pointing towards the other. Right? It's always about the second commandment. It's always going towards the other. And if you look at these, bitter jealousy does not go towards somebody else. It goes towards ourself. Right? Selfish ambition does not go towards somebody else in a healthy way. It's about us. Those two things hurt when they go that way. The rest of the list are all things that relationally we engage with other people. It's good for them. I want to give them that purity, peaceable, gentleness, open to reason, full of mercy, full of good fruits, impartial, sincere. All of those things play out in the context of relationship. They all play out in the context of relationship. Me to somebody else, you to somebody else. And it's about the other person. What does it mean to be peaceable? Well, there has to be another person there for that thing peaceable to come into play, for for it to have any action, for it to have life to it. 
for, for gentleness to exist, there has to be somebody towards which I am being gentle. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's relationship-based. What, what does this wisdom from above sound like? What does it sound like? Does anybody know? What else in Scripture? Fruits of the Spirit? Yes, that's one place. If you're in my small group, you cannot answer this question. What else? First Corinthians 13. Terry, oh my goodness, you can get up here and preach. Yeah, it sounds like love. To me, that sounds like love. Like when we hear these lists of love, like the First Corinthians 13 love list. Let's look at First Corinthians 13. First Corinthians 13, 1 to 7. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. There's definitely some connection there. Definitely some connection. So we have love is patient. Love is kind. It is not envious. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It is, does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It is not resentful. And that's the common phrase. It does not keep a record of wrongs, which you might be used to reading in your Bible, resentful. And it rejoices in the truth. Look at these lists. I mean, there's a lot of connection between these two, a lot of similarities in, to how love is related to wisdom from above. Wisdom from above reeks of love. Wisdom from above reeks of love. We think of wisdom often of the, um, maybe the picture of Solomon sitting at the, the gate to the city, and people come and they have a problem. Should I go left or should I go right? Ah, let me consider this. You should definitely go left because X, Y, and Z circumstances are playing out in your life. Go to the left and be filled. That's wisdom. When we have a, a good answer to a problem and when we have a good source of execution to solve a problem that exists, that's wisdom. But wisdom is so much more than that. And James really gives it to us in this chapter, in chapter 3. Yeah, it's about, do I make this decision or that decision? But so much more, there's this depth of love connected in with the concept of wisdom. Look at how these things interact. The yellow text means it came from the James 3 wisdom passage. The red text means it came from the 1 Corinthians 13 love passage. So think of blood, love, Jesus' blood, red, 1 Corinthians 13. So bitter jealous, don't be, it's not bitterly jealous, wisdom is not, and love is not envious or resentful. Bitter jealousy, envious, resentful. They are so connected together. Both of those passages speak to the same concept. Wisdom is peaceable and gentle. The love passage says love is not rude or irritable. Again, they mirror each other. The wisdom passage says that wisdom from above is full of mercy and full of good fruit. The love passage says that love is patient and kind. Wisdom 
passage says wisdom from above is not full of selfish ambition. The love passage says that love is not boastful, is not arrogant, it does not insist on its own way. What is selfish ambition about? It's going after what I want. It insists on its own way. It wants its thing to happen. Again, the connection, love and wisdom. Wisdom, open to reason. It's impartial. Again, the love passage does not insist on its own way. And finally, the wisdom passage talks about sincerity, which is that you say what you mean. You're sincere. It's not manipulation in your words. What you say is what you get. I mean what I'm saying. The love passage, love rejoices in the truth. So love and wisdom seem to be intimately connected in such a way that when we get to a place in life where, oh, I don't know what to do. Do I go to this place or go to that place? Default to love. Default to love. That's, that's kind of crazy because we often think that if I don't choose the right thing, then my life is going to fall apart. There, if I choose choice A instead of choice B, and choice B is really what I was supposed to choose, then I am on a path to destruction, which could be true. But what if we defaulted to love? What if we defaulted to wisdom that reeks of love as our first source for an answer to the problem that's before us? And maybe we can't even think that way, because when we think of problem, we automatically think of, I need a solution to that problem. Love often doesn't come up as a solution to a problem. It's not practical enough. We can't hold it in our hands, but the wisdom that James talks about is not this thing that we hold in our hands. It's not this easy solution that solves a hard problem. What does love solve? I don't know, but James certainly seems to think that wisdom has a deep connection to love, and we should default to the kind of wisdom from above that reeks of this love that comes out in 1 Corinthians 13. Um, 1 Corinthians 1, 21 to 24. I want to skip down more to the bottom. Let's look at verse 24. We'll look at the rest of the passage later. It says, uh, To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, there's a lot of talk about wisdom, which is interesting because in 1 Corinthians 13, there's a lot of talk about love. And this wisdom that 1 Corinthians chapter 1 talks about has to do with Christ and the cross. And it talks about the foolishness of this world and the foolishness of the philosophers of this world. And God says, but that's foolishness. That's foolishness. True wisdom is in my foolishness. And Christ is the wisdom of God. He embodies the wisdom of God. He also embodies the love of God. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Well, who did that? Jesus did that. Jesus is saying, greater love has none than this, that he that lays down his life for someone else, for his friends. Jesus is talking about himself. He embodies love. 1 John 4, 16 to 19. Um, we'll come back to this a little bit more, but up in verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. It couldn't be any clearer than that. God is love. So we get that God is love, and God 
is wisdom. These concepts dovetail with each other in Scripture. Well, jumped ahead too far there. Um, so love and wisdom, very similar, very woven together. And wisdom delivered in the context of love seems to be what comes from above. Wisdom reeks, it stinks of love, of this agape love, this love that comes from the Father towards his kids, and it's to overflow in us towards other people. Okay, that's all great, but what about the practicality of it? Um, I want to go back to the two stories that I started with. Uh, we, we seem to get love. We understand it. When we see it, when we experience it, when we give it, when we see others give it, we go, that's love. We just feel it. We just know it. Although, in a bigger picture, it's really hard to explain the concept of love. Um, in our small group the other night, we were talking about this. And we said, what if uh, you're trying to explain with words the concept of love to an alien culture of some sort who had no concept of love? What words would you say to, to describe that? And it would be hard to do that. Because you can't just... For instance, if you say, well, love, love is, is gentle... Okay, well, what's gentleness? Oh, gentleness is when, when you have a soft touch and when you're, you're calm and you talk quietly, and that's gentle. Although right now, you know that I'm just making that up, right? I'm just pretending to be gentle. When I am in the presence of a dog, I don't like dogs. Um, dogs know that. And people's dogs run up and they jump on me and lick me. I'm sorry if you're a dog owner. I don't, I don't mean to offend you at all. Um, I, I don't like that. But I try to play it cool. You know, like, I, like, I'm a dog lover. You know, it's licking me and it's doing things. And I'm like, ah, I'm wet in places that I wasn't wet when I first walked in here. And, um, yeah, I'm not afraid. No, I'm not afraid of you. But I, there's fear all over me. You've seen that or maybe you experienced that. I'm sure your dogs aren't like that. I don't, I'm afraid of that. I pretend to be loving and, you know, but there's this space here. There's this feel. You know that I don't love dogs if you saw me do that. You could tell that I'm afraid of dogs. You can't make this stuff up. You can't um, fabricate gentleness because there's a spirit behind it. You can't fabricate peaceable because there's a, a spirit that comes behind it. You can't fabricate patience. Okay, I'm explaining to this alien culture. Well, love is, is patient. So patience is when you wait for somebody to get done something. Okay. This is not, this is not communicate patience. Just because I'm waiting for something to get done doesn't mean you feel like I'm being patient with you. There's a, there's a posture about it. And so there's this spiritual thing going on in love that we can't hold on to, but we know when it's there. We get it. It's in our DNA because we were created in love by a loving father who made us in his image. And so when we watch a movie and something loving happens or this, it's a great story and we just like, we cry or it touches our heart because our spirits connect with that story because that's our story too. We're designed to be connected to that. Um, there's other examples. Like imagine describing the color green to somebody right? Who doesn't, like Jay, right? Who's colorblind? Well, green is the color of grass. Great, that helps me a lot. I still look gray. 
what's green? What it, it feels kind of warm. No, you can't really describe green. Uh, I want to do the, an example of this too. Jake, come on up. Jake agreed to do this, by the way, so I don't want anybody to get mad at me. Um, wetness, wet. Imagine describing wet to somebody who doesn't n- n- live on a planet that has water or liquid, right? So you're like, well, it, it gets on you and it doesn't go away right away, or it, it's kind of cold, but I guess it could be hot too. Um, how would you describe the feeling of wetness or this, the state of being wet? I, I would fail in my descriptions to Jake of what it me- good idea, of what it means to be wet. I would absolutely fail um, if he were from another culture, planet that didn't understand what, what being wet was. Um, Got you. You thought I was going to dump the bucket on, huh? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Jake doesn't know what wet is. I got to show Jake. Like, he's got to feel it. He's got to see it. He's got to touch it and taste it. He's got to have an interaction with wetness to understand truly what it is instead of just walking away with some sort of vague notion of, okay, it's it's on me and it maybe make me cold or maybe it'll make me hot and I don't know. Okay. Jake is going to know what it means to be wet, right? Right? So Jake's face is wet. I need to get a stronger spray on here. Like, now his shirt's, his shirt's wet right there. Okay, Jake, you're done. Now, Jake knows now what it means to be wet because he's experienced it, right? He knows what it needs, means to be wet. Now, we know love. Jake, thanks. Uh we all know love. Like, we get it. We know it. When I put all those lists up there, you know. You're like, yeah, that's love. But we so easily forget what it means to live in that truly. I don't think we want to walk around wet all the time so that we can remember what the concept of wetness is or feels like. But for love, Jesus wants us in that place deeply. Um, I said I was going to revisit those two stories. My dad, um, in relation to this illustration, I didn't get it, what my dad did, but, but I knew what he did was right. I knew him taking the flowers, this mean guy who lived up the street from us, who was just unhappy and miserable. I knew it was the right thing, and I didn't call it love. I just, it just connected in my spirit. Until I got older, I was like, man, my dad put himself on the line. Like, that guy could have just been like, get out of my face, get off my porch. This is a mockery. But my dad, he, he didn't know what else to do, so he did this crazy thing. My dad didn't have to prove himself right. He didn't have to tell this guy how much he had hurt his son. But what my dad did was... was this. He was full of mercy, for sure. Um, He didn't walk up there with a resentful spirit. He didn't uh, insist on its own way. He just insisted on God's way. Um, He was sincere in what he did. He wasn't rude. He wasn't irritable. He didn't boast. He wasn't arrogant. He was patient. He was kind. 
he showed a lot of good fruit. He was peaceable. He was gentle. I didn't think all that at the time, but, but I knew it. Like, I got it. I knew that that was the right thing, and I've never forgotten it since. My friend at the whistle stop in Ephrata, um, she could have reacted in a lot of different ways. Pfft, why are these kids ruining this cool hangout spot for people like me? Uh, why, why do they make it miserable? Why do my grandkids have to hear this language around here? Why, all of these responses are, are, in our mind, probably valid and reasonable to an extent. But, but that's not what she did. Um, she was full of mercy, and she was gentle and peaceable, and she wasn't out for herself. She was clearly out for somebody else, and she was sincere. That guy that she interacted with doesn't really know maybe that he was loved, but, but he felt love, so he knows it because he was made in God's image, and he knows what it's supposed to feel like, and he knows that he hasn't felt it in other places in his life because he told her about that, but he knew he did there, and the outworking of it was, was this simple hug, which is profound. It's profound. In both of those seemingly small, you know, life stories that we all can share, we might just go, oh, that's great. Wow, what a great way to live. It's transformative. It's, it changes everything. It changed me. The scripture in James 3. Oh, my. Hey, can you put James 3 up there? James 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Let it be seen. Let it be known. Let the world see this kind of wisdom that just stinks of God's love. Let them see it. Don't hide it. Because it changes the world. Let it be known. Prove it. Don't be afraid to let the world see these works. I saw my dad love our neighbor, who was a pretty unlovable dude. I saw it. I watched it. My dad didn't say, now, son, I want you to watch me walk up the street. You watch from your bedroom window, and you take note, so when you're older, that you can do the same. No, he didn't need to say that. My dad loves me. I know that. I watched my dad go up the street. Oh, it's going to happen. I hope my dad comes back alive. I, I watched that. I watched the story play out. I watched what my dad did. His action mattered to me. He didn't have to proclaim it to the world. He just did it. He wasn't ashamed. It takes a tremendous amount of risk and vulnerability to live in that way. A tremendous amount of risk and vulnerability to do something like that. You're putting yourself on the line because you don't know what's going to happen when you live in that kind of wisdom, that kind of wisdom that's full of love. You don't know what the other person's going to do because it's bizarre. It's not the way of the world, and the way of the world is what's out there, but God's way dominates and it rules, but, but it's hidden. It's hidden, and the world needs to see it. So James says, proclaim it, prove it. Some passages say, prove it, show it, other passages say, other translations. Show it. Let the world see the wisdom that comes from above because it changes things. It changes us and it changes them. Um, it takes a ton of risk and vulnerability. There's a, you guys may have heard this story. There's a church in Colorado Springs, which is like this evangelical Christian Mecca city. 
and there was this big mega church there, and there was a guy who was a pastor there. His name was Ted Haggard. Does anybody remember Ted Haggard? Yeah. And Ted Haggard was the, uh, the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, which was like the organizing body over all people that believe a certain thing and, you know, believe the Bible and believe that we should tell other people about Jesus, and I'm sure they're much more defined in their beliefs than that. But anyway, the National Association of Evangelicals, he was the president. Guy had a big, huge mega church. And then one day, bam, the bottom falls out. Finds out he's, he's having an affair. He's been unfaithful. There's drugs involved. It, I mean, it, it, was, it was ugly. It was nasty. And the press just loved it. They loved it. They just went after him so bad. And I mean, he was drugged through the mud. And I mean, rightfully so, I guess, through the world's eyes. And it was insane. It was just so, and you know, again, the world looking at the church going, like, ha, there he is. Like the top of your pyramid has fallen. You have nothing to show me. You have nothing. And I remember right after this had happened, I, I think I was on their website because I was just, I was grieved by this. I was just grieved that this had happened. I was mad. I was mad at him because he made me look bad as somebody who calls himself a Christian just like he does. I was mad because he represents the church in this huge way. And I was also like, man, I'm glad I'm not that dude because his life is messed up in so many ways. So I was curious. And I was feeling all those things. I went on to their church's website and there was this letter that his wife had written to the women of their church. And it, it was one of those things that was just profound. I don't know them. I don't know who they are. My roommate from seminary went to their church. That's the closest I ever got to that church. His wife writes, Dear Women of New Life Church. And then she writes some stuff and she addresses this issue. This was in 2006 that this happened. So eight years ago. She made the statement, and I never forgot this when I read it. To the, and I, I was preparing for today, and I was like, bam, her words came back to me again, and they come back occasionally. For those of you who have been concerned that my marriage was so perfect, I could not possibly relate to the women who are facing great difficulties, know that this will never again be the case. My test has begun. Watch me. I will try to prove myself faithful. And I remember reading that phrase, watch me, and I thought, wow. Ellie's got some guts. This wasn't just mailed out to the women of their church. Like, this is put on their website. And Matt Hershey and Lebanon from Pennsylvania found this letter as soon as it was written. And she said, watch me. James says, by his good conduct, by her good conduct, let them show their works in the meekness of wisdom. Let them show. Let them, I think the NLT says, prove it. Prove it. And she says it. She's like, watch me. Here I am. The eyes are on me. Watch me walk this out in love and faithfulness. Um, I don't know how the whole process walked out, but um, she and her husband are still together. He's been restored to some level, not in that church, but in the Christian community. Um, he has, uh, they have a new church, they've started a new church in Colorado, and they're, you know, doing ministry and bringing healing into people's lives. Uh, I don't know the ins and outs of it. She wrote a book called, I think it was called Why I Didn't Leave. What, what kind of vulnerability and risk does it take to walk in that kind of wisdom? I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people saying, girl, get out of there because he's going to do it again. Get out of there. And maybe they'd be right. I don't know. But she said, no. No, I'm sticking this out. And, and not only am I sticking it out, but watch me. Watch God's love in this place. I can't control what he's doing, but I can love and I can receive God's love, and I can still love him, and I can still love God, and I can still receive God's love, and I can still love you. Watch me. 
watch me. And so they did. Like, what guts? What vulnerability? I mean, typically we want to just run away and hide, and I'm sure she wanted to do that. What an embarrassment in her life, in her family, in her ministry, her credibility, her character. Well, how could you marry such a loser like that guy? But she stood up, and she said that love will rule. Love will rule. Like, I will have patience and kindness and mercy, and I will walk this thing out in a wisdom that is covered in love. And that's what she did. That's exactly what she did. When we get into these crazy situations in life that we don't know what to do, and we don't know what wisdom is saying, what's the wisest thing to do? Default to love. Default to love. In our own lives, um, let's start with marriages since that's where we ended. Um, This is very real. I mean, God's agape love for us is also part of our marriage as well, that kind of agape love towards our spouse. What what can that look like? Well, um, one of the problems in marriages can be that um, we bring our wounds to the marriage, right? I was wounded, my wife was wounded, we get together, and all of a sudden we're in this intimate connection, this one flesh relationship, and now we're supposed to deal with those wounds, right? And, and until you get into that marriage relationship, you don't really know how hard it's going to be or what that's going to look like. And so a man and a woman get married, and um, say one of them brings a particularly difficult wound. They were hurt when they were young. You know, they're vulnerable, they're young. Somebody hurts them. Abuse, mistrust, whatever, just hurts them in a significant way. Well, they learn pretty quickly, and kids learn. You know, you close off. You close yourself off, because that brings protection. So if I can protect myself from getting hurt again, then I'll just be okay. Except a lot of times people get married, and then they're in this intimate relationship with somebody, and it's just really hard to close yourself off in that context. And so instead of just being risky and vulnerable, which is what that context requires and demands of spouses in an intimate relationship— we control, right? So I was hurt over here. I'm not going to get hurt, especially by this person that I love who's really close to me, so I will control that. That's not love. So the control stems out of a fear. And then the person that's being controlled starts to fear because they're like, am I not good enough? Am I not beautiful enough? Do I not have what it takes Do I not have things just right? And then they fear that they're going to step out of line somewhere and get yelled at, screamed at, ignored, whatever the case may be. And then fear fosters there. So fear is from the controller, and fear is felt by the controlled. And so fear is everywhere. And we know in a marriage, and we, we all experience it to some degree. What does Scripture say about fear and love? Perfect love casts out fear. So if fear is felt in different spheres in a marriage or all over the marriage or in particular places, then love is not there, which is good. Isn't that God's grace? That when we know, gosh, that's a place where God's love needs to overflow in me. Uh, 1 John 4, 16. We had that passage up earlier. Um, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. But, but the marriage relationship isn't the only place where we, where we experience this. I mean, 
whether we're in a, a community context, in a church, in a ministry, in our, our extended families, our neighborhood. I mean, it's the same concept. Same concept. We've been hurt at some point, so we protect. And in order to protect, we have to control. People don't like to be controlled, so then this craziness develops back and forth in relationships, and so we either yell really loudly or we head out the back door as a means of controlling the other person or yelling really loudly to control them or to control the group, to get our way. That's not wisdom. That is not love. Can we go back to that, uh, the combined, the boxes, G? Wisdom from above and love together take risk. They take vulnerability. We put ourselves out there. Sometimes when you put yourself out there, you get hurt again. God says, my love is bigger than that. My love is bigger than that. If we don't risk, if we're not vulnerable, then we will continue to walk in these places that are wisdom from below. And wisdom from below is not infused with God's love. It's earthly and unspiritual and demonic. And it's the playground of the enemy. And he destroys relationships in that place. But God says, when you walk in this love and this wisdom that is so risky and so vulnerable that you put yourself out there, like, it's a fragile place. But you are jars of clay, and I will sustain you. And I'm not saying that you won't get hurt in that place, but I will saying I will be there to love you in that place. And you will know my love. And it's a hard, hard place to walk. In the midst of all that, we need to be thinking, watch me. Watch me live in God's love. No matter how hard it is, watch me. Let my kids watch me live in love. Let my spouse watch me live in love. Let my neighbors watch me live in love. Because there's big, huge kingdom consequences when we as God's church live in that place. Big, big, huge consequences. But it takes serious courage, serious courage to live in that place. Love is not, and this is just kind of a side note, love is not this thing, and wisdom is not, where we just say yes to everything. Love is not letting people around us do everything that they want. That's enablement. That's not good for anybody. Um, Love has boundaries to it, and both the James 3 passage and the 1 Corinthians passage talk about truth. Wisdom from above is, is embedded in the context of his truth. Love is embedded in the context of his truth. So his truth matters. The world says that love is saying yes to whatever makes everybody feel comfortable or feel right. If that's what you want to do, as long as you don't hurt anybody, you go ahead and do it. No, that's not love. That's not love. So enabling is not, is not love. And then other people might be saying, oh, I hear you. That's great. Those are great concepts but you don't know how bad I've been hurt. You don't know what my dad did to me, or you don't know what my ex-spouse did to me, or you don't, you don't know what happened to me by my uncle when I was a little kid. You don't know. So that's all great and everything. That's great. But you don't know the damage that's been done. I don't even know what it means to love. And you're right. I don't know what it means like to be in that place. I don't. I don't know what it means to be in your specific situation where things hurt that bad. But what I do know is that 
go back to these. Is that keeping a record of wrongs? Or that insisting on your own way? Or that being rude or arrogant or judgmental or partial or not being open to reason or being selfishly ambitious or being bitterly jealous as a result of those things will get you nowhere. I do know that. I do know that those things lead to death. And if that's the place that feels most comfortable because of the hurt is so bad, it leads to death. But the other stuff leads to life. The whole idea of watch me is very much in opposition to the idea of I'm going to go hide. James says, watch me live in God's love. In a relationship context where we um, are fearful because of our wounds and so we want to control the situation because that helps us deal with our fears, that's not love. And it also makes us pull away. It makes us pull away from people, from our spouse, from our community, because we can't control everybody, right? If we're going to control things, we want to have it be pretty manageable. If there's 50 people that we have to control, it gets out of control way too quickly for us. So we have to be isolated. So this stuff leads to isolation. I mean, and isolation doesn't just mean that you're not around people you can be isolated and still be around a lot of people. So as much as James is screaming, go out there and show God's love and say, watch me, watch me, watch me. If we're not doing, there, doing that because we're living in these other things that are not love and not wisdom, then we're isolated. And when we're isolated, the enemy just attacks and he just goes right to it and he destroys because that's what he is about. And God's love is saying, no, be courageous be risky, be vulnerable, go out there, live in love. And if you get hurt, it's okay because I'm going to keep loving you. And loving is just so much better than that other option, even if it came down to options, which it doesn't with God. There's a, actually, go ahead and look on the back of your bulletin. There's a quote at the top. James 3, 13 um, and following ends with this verse. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So he gives this whole mini dissertation on what is wisdom from above, which is this walking out love. Wisdom from above is walking out 1 Corinthians love. And the impact in the world is what James 3.18 says. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. When we walk in a wisdom that reeks of love, there is a harvest of righteousness in our lives, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our relationships in ministry and in our neighborhood and in our, in our extended family. All of these places, there is a harvest of righteousness. If we have the courage and if we can be vulnerable enough and take enough risks to walk in this kind of wisdom then a harvest of righteousness blows up in our world. It did for my dad with our neighbor. Like, yeah, it was one guy, but for me, it was a harvest of righteousness because it showed me who my dad was and it made me want to be like my dad. And now hopefully I connect with other people because of my dad doing what my dad did. And it wasn't just that isolated event with my dad. It was in 
the context of his life, which spoke something to me. And so there's a harvest of righteousness in these places where we live in this kind of love. It's so easy for us to just go, oh, love, yeah, yeah, love, love, it's over here, I get it, I get it. And I just want us to leave here today just knowing how huge this concept is and how it's everywhere in Scripture. So I want to I wanna, uh, wrap up with this story There's a, and, a, and, a, and a reading. I want to share a reading. Um, there was, a, when I was in graduate school, the, the ex-president, the president emeritus, was still lived on campus. And he was this, like, 80-something years old at the time when I was on school at school, and he, he was still active, and he lifted weights every day, and he was just always strolling around campus. You're like, man, this guy's got life. This guy's got a lot of life in him. He's like this tall. <laughs> now I'm standing up. I don't know if that's right. He's probably like this tall. Small guy, not at this impressive feature, but just, just amazing. And you just, what was it? What was it about him? He had, somebody once said that his name was Vernon Grounds. Can we go to Vernon's picture back there? Last slide, Gene. Um, love was the concept that ruled his life. And uh, somebody wrote a book about him, and it, the book was called Transformed by Love, and it's about his story of his life being transformed by love, as opposed to the things that aren't love that the passages talk about, the things that aren't wisdom. He, um, he was a wise man. Students would go to him in his office in the corner of the library just to, like, get wisdom on, I don't know if I should marry this girl or not marry this girl, or, you know, I don't know if I should move back home and help in this family situation. He was just kind of like the, the guru on top of the mountain that people journeyed to see, except he wasn't Hindu and he didn't live on top of a mountain. He lived in the library. Well, his office was in the library. So it was a lot easier getting to him, you know? Um, no pickaxes and crampons. To, so, um, but it was his wisdom that they were after. But when they got to Vernon, what do you think they got? They got love. Because that's the kind of wisdom that he defaulted to. He just loved people. And when you left Vernon's presence, you just knew that you mattered and that you loved and that your situation was hard, but you were loved and he was with you in it and God was with you in it. And somehow his love was the best wisdom that anybody could get. And I, re- I remember this book, again, as I was preparing the sermon, I, I was so fortunate as I opened up the cover that he had signed this book. And I thought, this is awesome. His love is in here. Anyway, that's a side note. He wrote this. This was written by somebody else, but there's some of his Vernon's writings in the back of this book. And listen to how he describes love. Hang in there. It's two, three pages. Many people in modern America wonder whether Christianity is really all that it's claimed to be. As far as they can see, Christianity makes next to no dent on life in the 20th century. Christianity is, no, is good, of course, and it is certainly right, yet it seems so impractical. It has a great deal to say about love, for example. Its hymnals are full of sweet sentiments regarding love for God and Jesus and the benightened multitudes dying in darkness. Love, however, seems hopelessly irrelevant in a power-conscious, power-mad world. For what is love anyway? This love which Christianity puts in the spotlight, isn't it merely a sensation, an emotion, something that has to do chiefly with romantic song hits, Mother's Day and poetry? How can it be relevant in our present world? Christianity has its pious poetry, its sweet sentimental message of love is apparently as practical as a horse-drawn buggy on a California freeway. 
Our world is ruled by science and its favorite child, technology. This is the age of bombs, the destructiveness of which we measure by megatons. This is the age in which bacteriological and radiological warfare will soon be perfected. In an age like this, Christianity does indeed seem irrelevant. Its stress on love seems to be a pretty relic from yesterday, an interesting museum piece which we gaze at with respect and veneration, but which we simply wouldn't dream of using because it's useless. So a 20th century Christian opens his Bible to a passage like Corinthians chapter 13. There he reads about love, and reading that passage, he understands why a generation ago, Henry Drummond, a famous scientist preacher, called love the greatest thing in the world. A 20th century Christian shuts his Bible, though, and wonders, is love actually the greatest thing in the world? Surely a sweet sentiment doesn't count in a world of space exploration, a world where bombs and missiles make a mockery of love. What's the value of Paul's poetry in a world where power speaks the last word? But maybe this matter of love is more complicated than it first appears. Maybe the message of Christianity, God's love for a lost world revealed in Jesus Christ, and therefore our need to love people just because God in love has redeemed all of us on the cross, has redeemed all of us on the cross, isn't as irrelevant as we might think. In Matthew 22, 36 to 40, our Lord Jesus Christ replies to a far-reaching question, a trick question put to him by an expert in the Old Testament. Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? How could that possibly be answered without triggering a heated argument? In the Old Testament, there is a great mass of commandments which God gives to the Jews. How then could Jesus possibly pick one imperative and be sure that it was unquestionably the greatest? He did just that, however, and he did it infallibly. He took Leviticus 19.18, a text from an obscure passage compounded of directives, which ranged from the trivial to the tremendous, and he fused that text with Deuteronomy 6.4, a text which was the very heart of Israel's faith. In so doing, our Lord achieved a master simplification. He reduced all of religion and all of ethics to a single imperative with a concave and convex side. Love God and love your neighbor. The enormous complexities of theology and morality are thus summed up in love. Only this love, bear in mind, is not a little feebling or a trifling emotion. It roots back into the nature of God, expresses itself in a bloody cross, and does not operate in human experience apart from our faith and the Spirit's enablement. What is the fulfilling of the law? What meets the entire sweep of God's demands? Love. Of course it does. When you love God, you honor his person, his name, his day, and his representatives on earth, our parents, who share in the creative process. That fulfills the first table of the Decalogue. And when you love your neighbor, you protect his life, his home, his property, his reputation, everything he has. That fulfills the second table of the Decalogue. So when you love, you keep the Ten Commandments. Love, then, is indeed the fulfilling of the law. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is a piece of poetry, though we know now that love is far more than poetry. It is a measureless force. As a matter of fact, this passage is a hymn in which Paul sings the praises of love. Not ordinary love, of course, but the supernatural love which the Holy Spirit creates within us when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. And this hymn voices one major idea, love. God's redemptive love in Jesus Christ, working out in our own lives by faith, is the greatest thing in all the world. Um, I had gotten an email, like a, a mass email from the president of Denver Seminary, where this guy used to be the president, um, just last week, as I was preparing this love passage, uh, preparing the sermon on love, and uh, the, the current president said 
um, in, in, he was writing about Vernon Grounds. Vernon hated war. He hated all human suffering. I once asked Vernon to name the most influential book that he had ever read apart from the Bible. Without hesitating, he said, The Doctrine of Divine Love by Sartorius, which if you read that book, it's like this 300-page book about love, and it's like this theological deep thing about love. That's it. Just recently, we discovered a book manuscript on the love of God that Vernon had submitted for publication. It was never published. The letter from the editor who rejected the manuscript stated that he didn't know how to market a book on this topic. How sad. Everyone starts somewhere when they think about God. Where do you start? Calvinists traditionally begin with the sovereignty of God, the neo-reform with the glory of God, Pentecostals with the power and presence of God, and Lutherans with the righteousness of God. Where we start when we think about God affects the way we see everything else we can know about him. I wonder how our theologies, our churches, and our lives of faith would be different if the love of God became our starting point. What if we viewed all our attributes of God through the lens of his divine love? What if we started with Jesus, God's redeeming love incarnate? Frankly, I suspect that our lives would look a lot more like Vernon's, the most empathetically compassionate man most of us has ever known. So that's just one, one person's testimony, one person's story, and we all have that. We've all received love in a way that transforms us, and we've all given love in a way that transforms us. Let's live in that place. This, this is the wisdom from above. Team, you guys can come on up. Um, we're going to close in worship this morning. I'm going to pray as we head into worship. Um, Jesus, we, uh, we want your love to be present in just such real ways that, that we don't have fear, that we have courage to walk into places of risk and to walk into those places with vulnerability. Um, like my dad went up to our neighbor's house. Um, like my friend talked to the young man who hated people. Turns out he doesn't hate people. Turns out he's dying for your love. Turns out he got it. And in that instant, he returned it right back. How beautiful, how transformative is that, Lord? God, let us love in this way. God, make it real to us. Amen. I didn't finish one thought. I told you to flip over your bulletins. Um, The harvest of righteousness. Um, I want to read this. Um, I want us to all think about this. Then this comes right out of this um, quote from Hughes, comes right out of James 3, verse 18. Righteousness cannot be produced in the climate of bitterness and selfish ambition fostered by wisdom from below. Righteousness can only grow in a climate of peace. This is a call to reject the decaying skeletons of earthly wisdom. The bones and grinning skulls of such false wisdom are clumped everywhere along the shores of modern culture, and among them are the remains of many believers and their churches. This is not the way that we were meant to live. The righteousness that is produced from the wisdom from above produces life. It produces goodness in our world, and it transforms us and the people around us. Um, I'm going to pray this um, passage over you from Ephesians 3. You know it. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. In Jesus' name.
Amen.